Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Violet Paget, who is more often known by her pen name Vernon Lee, was a historian and an art and literary critic, and she wrote across all kinds of subjects, including music and travel and aesthetics and psychology and economics. And the reason that we were talking about her in October, ghost stories. There maybe aren't quite as many ghost stories as I was hoping when I embarked on this. (laughs) (laughs) But there are some. Yay, I'll take it. Uh, Violet Paget was born on October 14, 1856, in Boulogne-sur-Mer, France. Her parents were Henry Ferguson and Matilda Paget. And Matilda had been married once before to a Captain James Lee Hamilton, who died in 1852. She had one son from that first marriage, Eugene Lee Hamilton, who was 11 years older than Violet. Violet's father had been Eugene's tutor, and since he had no money or background to speak of, Matilda's family had been kind of shocked when she chose to marry him. Yeah, Matilda was owed an inheritance, but it was tied up in a very complicated legal dispute. So even though they were British citizens, the Pagets couldn't afford to keep up a genteel lifestyle in England, especially not one that would require them to maintain a home and to keep up with their neighbors in that home. They could, however, afford that same basic level of comfort abroad. So Violet and Eugene grew up in a somewhat eccentric, very wandering existence in continental Europe. They moved from place to place, and they lived off what little income Matilda did have, staying in inns and rented rooms. But they weren't tourists. Matilda was adamant that they were not tourists. (laughs) Later in her life, here is how Violet described it. Quote, We shifted our quarters invariably every six months, and by dint of shifting, crossed Europe's length and breadth in several directions. But this was moving, not traveling, and we contemned all travelers. Violet's mother really doted on Eugene, and she focused most of her attention on Eugene's upbringing and education. Even after Eugene went off to Oxford, Matilda was still way more attentive to how he was doing than she was to Violet's studies. Violet did have a series of governesses, but a lot of times she was just left on her own and to her own devices when it came to study. But she was extremely bright, and she was very precocious, and they were living all over Europe. So she became fluent in English, French, Italian, and German, and she taught herself a wide range of subjects. While Violet's mother hated the idea of being a tourist, that often wasn't the case when it came to their various neighbors. When Violet was 10, the family was in Nice, and their neighbors included the Sargent family. That's including John Singer Sargent, also age 10, and his sister Emily, who was about a year younger. And John's mother had taken the family to Nice for the sake of her health, and she loved being a tourist. She filled their days with all kinds of outings, including to libraries and museums and historical points of interest, and she made it a point to invite Violet along as well. That same year that the Pagets met the sergeants, Eugene dropped out of Oxford. This was a huge disappointment to their mother, but it meant that Violet finally had an adult to give her self-education some more direction. Over the next few years, Eugene played a big part in Violet's course of study, and he also started to give her feedback on her writing. The Pagets and the sergeants crossed paths repeatedly after meeting in Nice, and Mrs. Sargent encouraged all of the children to play, write, and draw together. 
Violet and John weren't particularly close after they grew up, although he did draw and paint her. But Violet and Emily Sargent remained close friends for the rest of their lives. Yeah, a John Singer Sargent portrait of uh, Vernon Lee's is the art for this episode on our website. I love it. Yeah, it's, <laughs> she reminds me of Chummy on Call the Midwife, which I know is not a show that you were particularly I, into. I don't watch it because of all the the baby havings. <laughs> yes, it's, that is not your thing. It is my thing. So it was through all these art outings with the sergeants that Violet started to become a lot more interested in history and architecture and art. And this was particularly true when both families were living in Rome when Violet and John were 12. After walking through the streets and the historical sites of Rome and becoming really immersed in its sense of centuries of history, she really threw herself into studying it. She also started writing more and more and developing her own imaginative side, both through writing and through play. For example, she and John Singer Sargent would read about things like historical executions, and then they would act those out. Like, what kid didn't do that? I'd love that story. (laughs) Violet's first published work came out when she was 14 and it drew from her time in Rome and her study of history and art there. It was written in French and titled Les Aventures d'une pièce de monnaie, or The Adventures of a Coin. And as that title suggests, it's a story told through the life of a coin. It starts out in ancient Rome, and then the coin passes from person to person through the centuries until it ends up with a coin collector. This is obviously a fictional story, but it's also deeply grounded in history, complete with footnotes. The Adventures of a Coin came out serially in three issues of the journal La Famille in May, June, and July of 1870. Throughout her teens, Violet was ambitious, precocious, and very focused. She kept on writing and getting her work published, and in 1873, when she was 17, her family finally settled down into a permanent home, and that home was in Florence, Italy. They moved into a different house in Florence, known as Il Palmarino, in 1882. That is where Lee lived for the rest of her life. A big part in this shift from their perpetual wandering to staying put was that Violet's mother had finally gotten that inheritance she was owed. So now they could afford all the associated costs that came along with maintaining a household. They still didn't have a ton of money, though. One of the reasons that they were in Florence was because Italy was considered to be the cheapest place to live. But another big part of it was that Eugene had become seriously ill. He had started to experience an unexplained paralysis. And so the family put down roots, and he moved home to be cared for by his mother and his sister. Violet had enjoyed many of the places that they had lived over all those years, but she really, really loved Italy, And to her, it was just home. Violet adopted the pseudonym Vernon Lee in 1875 at the age of 19, after her family had been living in Florence for about two years. And we'll get to that after a quick sponsor break. By the time Violet Paget started using the pseudonym Vernon Lee in 1875, it was becoming a lot more common for women to publish their work under their own names. Her peers and the women who were acting as her literary mentors were publishing as themselves. And while it wasn't necessarily completely acceptable socially for a woman to be publishing her work, it also wasn't practically mandatory for a woman to take on a man's name in order to get published at all. 
But Paget had moved on from writing things like The Adventures of a Coin, and she was embarking in the world of art criticism and aesthetics, which is the branch of philosophy devoted to beauty, the nature of art, and artistic appreciation. She was writing very dense technical work on academic subjects. She had no formal education, she was still quite young, and she hadn't developed any kind of name or reputation for herself. In her words, written to novelist Henrietta Jenkin, quote, no one reads a woman's writing on art, history, or aesthetics with anything but unmitigated contempt. This pen name she adopted was the combination of Vernon, because it started with a V like Violet, and Lee from her half-brother's surname. For a time, she also used her father's initials, so it was H.P. Vernon Lee. The first time she used the pseudonym was in a series of articles in the Italian journal La Revista Europea, or the European magazine. After those first articles as Vernon Lee, she never published as Violet Paget again, even after people made the connection that Vernon Lee and Violet Paget were one and the same. She did, however, use both names in her personal life, including signing some letters with one name and others with the other. The name Vernon Lee became increasingly recognized, though, so going forward, we're going to use that name for the rest of the podcast. Yeah, people handle her name differently. (laughs) Some people say Vernon Lee throughout. One of the biographies that I read switched back and forth between whether they were talking about her formal work or her social life. Very interesting. I understand the idea, but... Yeah. It seems like she was very fluid with both names. Yeah. But for the interest of clarity, it's probably easiest to just pick one and run with it. (laughs) Yeah, flipping back and forth in an audio podcast seemed like it would be more confusing than not. Regardless, though, 1880 was a busy year for Vernon Lee. She was 24, and she published a work called Studies of the 18th Century in Italy, Some of this book had been previously published as standalone essays, and it was an exploration of 18th century Italian literature, theater, and music, including opera and Commedia dell'arte. It was deeply informed by years of trawling through bookstalls and libraries looking for old copies of 18th century material. It was also informed by Lee's study of and thoughts on aesthetics and by her study of music. She had actually given up music lessons when she was younger because she just wasn't very good at it. And then she started them again while working on this book so that she could appreciate the technical elements of what she was writing about. This book took English readers on a tour of 18th century Italy, and it was very popular and generally well-reviewed. Its content and its reception also gave her access to some prestigious artistic and literary circles. It was one of the things that helped her develop an extensive network among some of the foremost Victorian writers, artists, and philosophers. Yeah, one of the things that people comment on about Vernon Lee a lot, besides her writing, is this extensive network of basically everybody that was a prominent person in the whole literary, artistic, and philosophical world at the time. She she knew practically everyone. She also started a relationship with another young writer named Mary Robinson in 1880. Robinson was invited to stay with the Pagets in Florence, and soon she was spending every autumn in Florence with Lee, and Lee was spending every summer in London with her. Robinson and Lee spent a lot of their time together, working side by side. But Robinson's family was not particularly enthusiastic about this relationship. This was a time when romantic friendships were common and not particularly stigmatized, and at least at first, nothing more was suspected. 
But Lee could be catty and tactless, which the Robinsons simply did not approve of. And they also felt somewhat taken advantage of, since it was through them that Lee was meeting a lot of publishers for her work. In 1881, Lee published a work called Belcaro, being essays on sundry, aesthetical questions, which she dedicated to Mary Robinson. The set of essays was very heavily influenced by the aesthetic philosophy of Walter Pater, who Lee met that same year. Pater became one of Lee's very few close male friends. In general, she had several close women friends, almost no close male friends. He was also a huge influence on her work. Lee was also, for a time, friends with novelist Henry James. There's some speculation that James wrote her into his novel Roderick Hudson, but she was only 19 when that book came out, so the timing doesn't quite add up with when she then had access to all of these people. But they were friends and correspondents by the 1880s. On September 28th, 1884, James wrote a letter in which he said, quote, I don't think, I think Violet Paget great, but I think her a most astounding young female, and Euphorian most fascinating and suggestive, as well as monstrous clever. She has prodigious cerebration. Uh, Euphorian's full title was Euphorian Being Studies of the Antique and Medieval in the Renaissance. Yeah, it was similar to the 18th century Italy book, but about the medieval and Renaissance periods. Uh, I love she has prodigious cerebration. (laughs) But, That same year, also in 1884, Lee published her first novel, which was called Miss Brown. She and Henry James had been corresponding while she was working on it, and James knew that Lee was planning to dedicate it to him. But when it came out, he didn't like it. That's awkward. Uh, he, (laughs) He never really told Lee what he thought about it. He sort of danced around his criticisms once he eventually wrote her a letter, but before he did that, he told basically everyone else how bad he thought it was. In one letter, he wrote, quote, As I told you, my modest name is on the dedication page, and my tongue is therefore tied in speaking of it, at least generally. But I may whisper in your ear that as it is her first attempt at a novel, so it is to be hoped it may be her last. It is very bad, strangely inferior to her other writing, and, to me at least, painfully disagreeable in tone. Henry James was not alone in this opinion. Overall, Miss Brown was very widely panned. It was basically a Pygmalion story about a poet and painter who finds the eponymous Anne Brown, who's a servant girl, and he educates her with the intention of marrying her. And so a lot of the novel hinges on her decision and her deliberation of whether she wants to marry him or not. Lee just didn't put much separation between the real-world inspirations for her characters and the characters themselves. It satirized the aesthetic movement that was playing out in London, and there were a lot of unflattering characters in the novel who had real-life counterparts, including Oscar Wilde. That is a person I would not want to make an enemy of, frankly. Uh, These counterparts were so obvious that people also interpreted similarities that weren't intentional as being about them. People were particularly annoyed because Lee was a relative newcomer to the London scene, so they didn't think she had enough experience with it to be justified in her criticisms. Lee also saw still more controversy in 1884 with her publication of The Countess of Albany, which was a biography of Charles Edward Stewart's wife, Louise. 
People were outraged over this biography because Lee wrote about the Countess sympathetically, and she spelled out how she was living at a time and in a place where it was normal and expected for a woman to have a lover. But to her English audience, the Countess was just an adulteress who deserved neither sympathy nor respect. Lee was still reeling from all this criticism when Mary Robinson married James Darmestetter in 1887, ending their seven-year relationship. Darmestetter had read and appreciated some of Robinson's work, and they had gotten engaged after corresponding for just a few months. No one except the couple was in favor of this match. The Pagets had really taken for granted that Robinson would never marry and that her relationship with Lee would just go on indefinitely. The Robinsons disapproved because Darmestetter was Jewish from a poor family and disabled due to a spinal disease he'd had as a child. Also, a whole lot of people pointed out that they had only met in person like three times before they got engaged. I am not in a position to judge that. Uh... Lee was absolutely heartbroken when Robinson married, but almost immediately she began a new relationship with Clementina and Struther Thompson, who was known as Kit. It is not 100% clear whether she pronounced this Ainster and Struther uh, or some other variation. She was from Scotland, and there is a town in Scotland where locals say Ainster, but everyone else does not. So apologies if I have offended anyone's ear. We don't mean to make your ears bleed when we say this name. And Strother Thompson basically waited out the end of Lee's relationship with Mary Robinson. Lee had asked her mother to invite Anne Strother Thompson to stay with them in Florence once she heard about this engagement. Once the rest of the Pagets also knew about the engagement, she asked again, saying, quote, you will understand now why it would make me utterly miserable if I were not permitted to have this woman in Florence. And Anstruther Thompson patiently tended Lee through her heartbreak. Robinson's wedding was in March of 1888, and by about June, Anstruther Thompson had taken her place in Vernon Lee's life. This was a turning point in Lee's life, and we're going to get to the next phase and those ghost stories we promised you uh, after we first have a little bit of a sponsor break. Even though she was bolstered through her relationship with Kit and Strither Thompson, Vernon Lee's output really dipped for a while after Mary Robinson announced her engagement in 1887. Lee had always been prone to anxiety and illnesses, and over the years, she'd also had a series of mental breakdowns. But those years after Robinson got engaged and married were particularly hard. For almost 10 years, a lot of her publications, especially the more academic ones, were previously published essays. This was, however, when she wrote most of her supernatural stories. This wasn't totally new territory for her. Earlier in the show, we mentioned her collection of essays, Belcaro, being essays on sundry aesthetical questions from back in 1881. And one of the essays was Faustus and Helena, Notes on the Supernatural in Art. Here is a quote from that, quote, We none of us believe in ghosts as logical possibilities, but we most of us conceive them as imaginative probabilities. We can still feel the ghostly, and thence it is that a ghost is the only thing which can, in any respect, replace for us the divinities of old and enable us to understand, if only for a minute, 
the imaginative power which they possessed and of which they were despoiled not only by logic but by art. By ghost, we do not mean the vulgar apparition which is seen or heard in told or written tales. We mean the ghost which slowly rises up in our mind, the haunter not of corridors and staircases, but of our fancies. In 1890, Lee published a collection of four supernatural stories called Hauntings, and the preface runs along a very similar theme to that earlier essay. She writes about the trope of the horrible family secret that's revealed to every member of the family on their 21st birthday, quote, so terrible as to overshadow his subsequent life. She writes about how the dread of this terrible secret is so much worse than whatever the reality can be. She goes on to say that, quote, it seems to me that the supernatural, in order to call forth these sensations, terrible to our ancestors and terrible but delicious to ourselves, skeptical posterity must necessarily, and with few exceptions, remain enwrapped in mystery. She ends the preface, Hence, my four little tales are of no genuine ghosts in the scientific sense. They tell of no hauntings such as could be contributed by the Society of Psychical Research, of no specters that can be caught in definite places and made to dictate judicial evidence. My ghosts are what you call spurious ghosts, according to me the only genuine ones, of whom I can affirm only one thing, that they haunted certain brains and have haunted, among others, my own and my friends. The stories in her collection, along with most of her other supernatural stories, piece together events that are increasingly odd and eerie and foreboding and oppressive, and they're also really deeply connected to the place where the story is set. Oak of Oakhurst, or The Phantom Lover, which was originally published as A Phantom Lover, A Fantastic Story, is the only one of these stories that's set in England, and it's set in a creepy old manor house. It draws from a lot of the tropes of an English story set in a creepy old manor house. But the rest are set in Italy, Spain, or Germany, and they draw extensively from history and myth and folklore, and often there's an underpinning of some fictional historical facts that are pointed out as facts, and they make it seem more real. A few examples of these stories, which were mostly written between 1889 and 1902. Uh, Amour Dure is written in the form of a diary. It is about a historian who becomes increasingly fixated on and enamored with a historical woman he is researching named Medea de Carpi. Dionea is a series of letters detailing these strange and violent events surrounding a young girl who was the only survivor of a shipwreck. Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady features a young boy who becomes more and more preoccupied with a story about how his namesake ancestor rescued a woman from being enchanted as a snake, which was also depicted on a tapestry in his grandfather's home. Just as a side note, uh, Vernon Lee's half-brother, Eugene Lee Hamilton, was a writer as well. He also wrote gothic and supernatural stories, although his tended to be a lot more lurid and a lot less psychological than his sister's. I read a couple of these stories while I was working on this. Uh, I feel like they hold up pretty well. Hers or his or both? Hers. Gotcha. I did not read any of his. Gotcha. <laughs> I just read their the description that in general they tended to be a lot more, a lot more along the lines of here is the creepy ghost, obviously supernatural happening, while Lee's tended to be more like there's some unexplained elements here, but this person is is also being tormented by their own mind. Right. 
And ghost stories were not the only thing that Lee was writing at the end of the 19th century. In 1892, she wrote the story that finally put the nail in the coffin of her friendship with Henry James. It was called Lady Tal, and it came out in a collection called Vanitas, Polite Stories. Lady Tal included a transparent and unflattering fictionalization of Henry James. And this time, James did not read it. He heard about it, decided he would rather not know, and that he was done. He later wrote his brother in a letter in which he said it was, quote, particularly impudent and blaggardly sort of thing to do to a friend and one who has treated her with such particular consideration as I have. She's a tiger cat, which to me is like a great compliment, but that's maybe not what he intended. (laughs) Vernon Lee and Kit Anstruther Thompson also worked together on a theory of aesthetics at the end of the 19th century. It was drawn from Kit's own awareness of her body's physical responses while looking at art. This was connected to the German concept of Einfühlung, or feeling into. It's one of the first English-language explorations of the idea of empathy in the context of aesthetics. They published an essay on this work that was called Beauty and Ugliness in 1897. It was rooted in the idea that these physical responses are the work of a person's body, subconsciously mimicking or living through what you're seeing in the art. This was, unfortunately, the end of their relationship as well. Art historian and critic Bernard Berenson had been working on some similar ideas, and he accused both women of plagiarism. He later admitted that his accusations had been baseless, but the stress of the accusation took such a toll on Anne Struther Thompson that she had a mental breakdown. She went back to Scotland shortly before Beauty and Ugliness was published, although this was an amicable split and the two women stayed in touch for the rest of Kit's life. This was the third in a series of upsets for Lee that came pretty closely together. Her friend and mentor, Walter Pater, died in 1895. Her mother died in 1896. And with her mother's death, Lee took on the primary responsibility for caring for her brother, Eugene, who was still very ill. This was something that she continued to do until he got married in 1898. He just to note it, died in 1907. To console herself through all of this, Lee also turned to travel writing. She traveled extensively around Europe, although mostly to conventional places, and she seemed to find some comfort in writing about it. And she bought Il Palmerino in 1906. By the 19-teens, Lee had worked in so many fields and across so many genres. There was art history, art criticism, history, philosophy, fiction, and on and and on and on. Both she and her mother had also been ardent anti-vivisectionists and campaigners for animal rights. But as World War I approached, Lee increasingly focused on advocating pacifism, including writing anti-war literature. And this was, of course, highly criticized. And even among pacifists, Lee was something of a loner. She distanced herself from people whose pacifism was radical or religiously motivated. And she was isolated from her home as well. She was in England when the war began in 1914, and she wasn't able to get back to Italy until after it was over. During the war, she joined and wrote for the Union of Democratic Control, or the UDC. The UDC was a British organization that called for reduced armaments and the creation of an organization among European nations designed to prevent future warfare, along with a treaty at the end of the war that did not redraw all the borders or humiliate the defeated nations. 
Of course, the Treaty of Versailles did the opposite, and Lee, having lived in Germany at several points in her life, was just certain that the terms of the Treaty of Versailles that were meant to punish Germany were really going to cause and not prevent future conflict. Because she knew what she was talking about. She did. Uh, most of Lee's writing during and after World War I was about pacifism. In 1915, she wrote an allegory called The Ballet of Nations, A Present-Day Morality. And in 1920, she published Satan the Waster, A Philosophic War Trilogy. But by this point, both she and her output were slowing down. She was getting older, and although she was still able to travel, once the war ended, she typically only went to places that she had been before. In 1920, Lee realized that the main villa at Il Pomerino had become much too big for her, and rather than sell the whole property, she moved into one of the cottages there that a friend had rented from her and improved. It was the sort of property that had a main villa and then several farm cottages that tenant farmers could live in, and she moved into one of those that had been fixed up a bit. When Kit Anstruther Thompson died in 1921, Lee became her literary executor. Mary Robinson was also widowed, remarried, and then widowed again, but she and Lee never really rekindled their relationship. During her 53 years writing, Vernon Lee wrote more than 30 works of nonfiction, four novels, four volumes of short stories, and a play, as well as essays and letters. This was a massive output, especially considering that some of it was very dense and academic, and she had no formal education. She also had ongoing relationships and lengthy correspondences with people like H.G. Wells, Edith Wharton, and Mary Cassatt. She died in Italy on February 13th of 1935. She'd become chronically ill, and she'd lost most of her hearing. Not long before her death, she told her own literary executor that she felt like, quote, an alien, having no ties, either of nation, blood, class, or profession. The older she got, the more she felt like she had just sort of been born in the slightly wrong era. She wished she had been born a little later, and then she could have been like a modern woman of letters rather than being this sort of odd Victorian outlier. A lot of her papers are at Colby College in Maine, which is kind of ironic because she never traveled to the U.S. Having lived through World War I, she was very concerned about the idea of her work being destroyed in a war, and her literary executor, Irene Cooper Willis, decided Colby would be the safest place. Today, a lot of Lee's work in aesthetics seems somewhat dated, uh, but a lot of her other work, especially her histories and her supernatural stories, have held up a lot better. Those supernatural stories have variously been reissued and some have been included in collections into the 20th century. You can also find a ton of this work on the internet for free. The stories, uh, Hauntings is available, I think, at Project Gutenberg pretty easily um, and is a fun collection of, of ghostly short stories to read. Some of the other work is, again, very dense. <laughs> especially the the more philosophical stuff. Do you have some listener mail for us today? I sure do. I have two quick emails that are both about air conditioning and school. <laughs> One is from Mary. Mary says, Greetings, Tracy and Holly. I was listening to your AC podcast while getting ready for work, and I just had to tell you what's happening right now. I, like both of you, grew up in the South, my classrooms had window units, and the halls were oppressive, with the exception of a newer building with central air. 
My glasses, which were new to me my junior year, fogged up when I went from the classrooms to the halls. I live in central Pennsylvania now, and school just started. While we've had a very wet summer, we've just hit a bit of a heat wave, and three days in several schools were having early dismissal because of the heat and the lack of AC in schools. You couldn't have timed this podcast better. She... Uh, makes a note about the idea of an episode suggestion and then says, thanks for all the great stories you share, Mary. And then on a similar note, we have one that is from Sally. And Sally says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I love your show. I was listening to the episode on air conditioning and had to write in when I heard you talking about your schools having or not having air conditioning. I am from Australia, where the summer days regularly reach 36 degrees Celsius and went to high school from 1999 to 2003. No air conditioning is pretty standard in Australian schools. Even my expensive private high school had only one building that was air conditioned. There's an urban myth popular with Australian school children that if it gets over 40 degrees Celsius, everyone gets to go home from school. To my knowledge, it has never actually happened, although there are always rumors that it happened once in Melbourne, so it may just be true. And then the letter says, it's a hot, dry heat in Melbourne, not muggy and humid like it is here. I know I don't sound like an Australian person when I say the name of that city, by the way. Anyway, I just thought you might find this thing amusing. Best, Sally. Thank you so much, Sally and Mary, for sending these notes. I was particularly delighted because we got several emails that were all about air conditioning in school. And because Mary was talking about how hot it was when this episode came out, I recorded the air conditioning episode with ice packs literally held onto my body because it was so hot. Um, because, like, to to record a podcast, you have to be in a quiet place, which means closing all the doors and windows and everything. And then the day that the episode came out, it was just as hot as as it had been the day that we recorded it. So that day, uh, I think we didn't, I wasn't recording anything that day. I was able to, like, hide in an an air-conditioned place from the heat. So uh, thanks to everyone who has written to us about air conditioning in or not in their schools. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And then we are all over social media as Myths in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook and our Twitter and our Instagram and our Pinterest. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where you will find show notes for the episodes that Holly and I have worked on together that will include some links to Vernon Lee's various work in this one. You can also find a searchable archive of every episode ever. And you can do all of that at mistinhistory.com. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 